Okay. Yeah, I'm recording now. So, yeah. Great. Uh, hello, everyone. Delighted um, that you're able to join us today for another ConservativeFriends.com webinar. Uh, I want to point out that a recorded version of this webinar will be available shortly after the end of this broadcast. We are delighted to have with us today a hugely successful businessman in uh, Andrew Pilly. He is the current chairman and owner of uh, English Football League One club Fleetwood Town, um, as well as being the chairman of the uh, independent commercial utility group BES Utilities and managing director of uh, Commercial Power, as well as Cardsaver, uh, the Leisure Channel and many others. He's also been a, a, an avid supporter for our organization. So, um, Andy, thank you for joining us today. And um, I'd like to kick things off with just understanding how you and your businesses have been coping in the last few months in this unique year. Well, first of all, thank you for, uh, for having me uh, on, uh, the, um, on the forum tonight. I'm, I'm hugely honored. Uh, I really am. Um, clearly a very, very difficult year uh, business-wise. Um, times like no other time that we uh, have experienced in our lives and uh, uh, for the best part of 100 years, I'm sure. We've had a range of challenges. Um, my businesses are quite diverse, so they're all uh, somewhat different, really, uh, and the challenges that we've faced um, have varied, uh, but uh, nonetheless, I must say that uh, they all bear their own uh, scar or wound uh, from COVID, uh, which uh, sadly is, uh, is somewhat ongoing uh, right now. Um, I think during the COVID pandemic, our, our first priority has always been uh, the, the welfare of the staff and the, the priority of the staff. I think we have an obligation to ensure that everybody is uh, is firstly safe and that the, uh, the families of our staff um, are also um, as safe as they can possibly be during this um, very, very difficult time and that protecting our, our people and their loved ones um, is always um, is always at the forefront of our minds. Um, redeploying our staff uh, when the first lockdown uh, commenced was a real um, well a real challenge for us also um, because in it straight away we have to we have to find a way of working from home. This is alien to us. And we're used to the the office environment whereby internal communication is so much more straightforward. It's easier. Uh, to walk over to somebody's desk than uh, what it is to communicate via Zoom and Teams. I think it's fair to say that Zoom and Teams have become very much part of um, everyday life nowadays. Um, it's uh, going back to February, January of, of this year. Uh, I'd heard of it, but I was uh, far from familiar with the process. It's just uh, three, four, five different Zoom and Teams meetings every day nowadays. So change the way that we, we live our lives. Um, I mean, my energy business, first and foremost, the problems we encountered there was the vast majority of the businesses that we supply closed down during the lockdown. That gave us a surplus of energy. And sadly, if you have a surplus, you have to resell. And what tends to happen is when there's a surplus, the price that you are reselling for tends to be very low. And so we ended up having to sell for far less than what we purchased for. Uh, which um, inevitably causes losses uh, for the business. We didn't encounter as much bad debt as what we anticipated we might. We were concerned that people would just not pay their bills and would just uh, like uh, go into a, a hibernation stage and just keep whatever they've got. Uh, I think there was a real degree of decency and uh, almost we're all in this together um, with the vast majority of our customers and Anybody who could pay seemed to pay, though it was very important that ourselves as a company, we, we build people correctly. Um, if people are closed, we want, to, uh, we want to reflect that in the bills that we're sending out because I'm sure we're all the same. That if I get an invoice for a bill, which I think is incorrect, then I won't pay that bill. I'll say, no, that needs to be resolved. It needs to be put right and, uh, and then we'll pay it. So there was a real campaign on getting bills right and uh, the bad debt we incurred was no different to what we normally do. So that was pleasing. The furlough, of course, helped, helped enormously because uh, without that, I don't know if some of my businesses would still be um, in play now. 
it gave us the ability to stand some people down in these difficult times um, and to still be able to pay them and uh, to, to keep our head above water. Uh, so that was great. Um, there was personal challenges for myself uh, in as much as my mother uh, contracted COVID. She was uh, particularly ill. She was in intensive care. Uh, so that really, that made it feel very real for me. Um, when you've got somebody as close to you as your mother, who you're, you're concerned that is she going to come out the other end um, of, uh, um, of this illness? Thankfully, she pulled through. And um, as I say, it's, I mean, personally, I contracted the illness uh, back in March. Um, it felt like a bad flu for me. Um, my son did. Uh, my sister did. It feels like there's been uh, quite a, um, there's been quite a lot of it around really where I live. And um, maybe it's because we've had the benefit of quite a lot of tests. Um, we have through the core business, we've tested the vast majority of our staff and also through the football club, we've managed to test a lot of uh, our football staff also. Um, obviously, as I say, I mentioned uh, before the furlough scheme and I appreciated enormously the various schemes that were rolled out by the treasury. And one of the biggest disappointments for me personally, as a businessman, was it felt like, for me anyway, that my businesses, we could not benefit particularly from the C-Bill scheme. It felt like we kind of fell in between the cracks of that scheme. It felt like the smaller businesses managed to um, secure some funding. The larger businesses did, but as a medium business, it was left to our banks to um, draw their own interpretation as to whether we qualified. I was particularly disappointed with the response that I received uh, from my bank. And that was that um, it was defined as it being extremely probable that uh, we would not qualify, which I find quite bizarre given that we were incorporated back in 2002 and we've, we've turned a, a good profit for the last 18 years. And equally that um, we employ so many people in, what is quite a deprived part of the UK. So that was somewhat disappointing. And had it not been for the uh, intervention, uh, we had a uh, chap, it's Kevin Holliday, uh, who, who is actually the chair of Fair Business Banking, who actually I managed to contact, and uh, I'd like to praise him. Uh, he was really helpful. He, uh, he jumped on the back of um, some of the communication we're having with the bank and uh, did all he, all he possibly could to, uh, to help. But uh, obviously he's not gonna be able to do that with, a, with, a, with all the businesses that also require funding. So, uh, I mean, without careful handling, COVID really would have been catastrophic for myself and my business. There's no handbook to, to maneuver your way through times like this. And I think norm, the biggest challenge really for me is normally in a crisis, you develop a plan. And the, with a plan, what will happen is you will, um, you'll, you, you'll kind of say, right, this is going to happen for so long, and then we're going to come out the other end. But it felt like we had to try and look into the future and anticipate when the lockdown was going to end. And of course, nobody knew because it was unprecedented times. And the longer it went on for, I think businesses did evolve a little bit. They became a little bit more creative. Perhaps restaurants became takeaways more people started to trade online and uh, perhaps from home. And uh, gradually, uh, thankfully, we came out of it. Uh, but then sadly, we've gone back in. Uh, hopefully, uh, this is only a temporary situation and uh, we can get back to some degree of normality in the very near, uh, near time. Uh, I mean, the football club, uh, very, diff uh, very different. Uh, we lost all of our revenue streams and perhaps I can come on to that later. Um, that's uh, uh, equally... Uh, different challenges, but nonetheless, very, very difficult times. I mean, it's um, I think the fact that, you know, so many people have been contracted by the virus just shows how real it really is. And uh, obviously our thoughts and prayers with your family and your, and your mother. And hopefully, um, you know, now that you've contracted it, that, you know, you almost um, have the antibodies to sort of deal with the virus going forward. And um, and that kind of leads me on to my next sort of question, you know, with COVID-19, you know, hopefully the restrictions or they start to come to a bit of an end in December the 2nd. Um, what, what challenges do you really 
envisage for the next, let's say, 12 months, 24 months for a lot of your businesses, uh, generally speaking? I think the biggest challenge that my business is, and I think every business uh, has, uh, Sunil, is that uh, it's working capital because we've all been decimated uh, by, um, by the virus in some way. Um, it's cost everybody. The economy is a money go round, as we all know. And it's meant that with shops being closed, it's prevented money being passed from one business to another, to another, to another. And again, the Treasury has helped with the deferral of uh, HMRC payments, uh, VAT, uh, pay as you earn, etc. However, um, we didn't anticipate lockdown too. I think that um, and it's my expectation, really, because um, I do, I trust and I believe in the Conservative Party, the Conservative government, that they back businesses and the creation of jobs and uh, the development of the economy. I think uh, there's probably going to be a need to smear and to get behind businesses and to create perhaps some longer term payment plans for the repayment of the obligations to the Crown. So I think it's about working capital and uh, what would be disastrous, given all the investment in furlough, in sea bills, which is underwritten by the government uh, and all the other uh, fantastic, great fluid safe funding that's occurred, would be to then um, start putting businesses to the wall um, because of obligations to HMRC. I think we've just got to be sensible and uh, have payment plans. So, of course, the government gets the money which can be then redeployed into the health service and education and all the other necessities. But um, we have to be understanding about business needs and keeping people in employment. I mean, a lot of people here, um, I'm sure, are fascinated by your journey into becoming a successful businessman. Uh, I want to get an understanding of uh, how it all began. <laughs> right, well, uh, it all began for me, Sunil. Um, back in 2000, I got involved in the deregulation of the energy industry and um, I ended up as a sales manager and I was uh, in charge of training um, probably 30 or 40 um, sales guys who would make contact with business owners and they would explain the benefits of deregulation, how people now had a choice and they could choose a provider which was best for their particular circumstances. Now, the supplier at the time, which we did the vast majority of business with, was uh, the notorious Enron. And uh, I'm sure you'll have uh, heard of, of Enron, and uh, there's a musical now, there's a movie, uh, and uh, it goes through the, uh, the tale of, uh, sadly, it was built on false accounting, a uh, big American power company that went to the wall. And the knock-on effect of that was, the business I worked for also um, sadly went to the wall and that ended up being my opportunity in life really because the 30 or 40 guys who um, who worked at the time underneath me, uh, they had a variety of different leads and they had mortgages and rents to pay and they had prospects and they said, look Andy, and we've got potential business. Can you negotiate a deal with a different power company and uh, perhaps we can do some business with you. So I got on the phone and I managed to secure um, a deal with two different power companies. And I ended up uh, working for my box room, um, doing really everything I'm not very good at, which is uh, admin, HR, finance, IT, uh, everything I'm no good at. And uh, I uh, eventually um, secured the services of my sister, who uh, compliments me very well. And I stuck to the strategy and the sales and uh, we built the business up from there. Uh, very humble beginnings. And uh, in about 2005, we saw uh, this was after really becoming quite successful as a, a brokerage stroke consultancy. We saw the opportunities in becoming a supplier and we became a gas supplier in 2005, which was a brave move. We put a lot of money into that, pretty much everything we had in the world. Uh, we had to make sure Failure could not be an option, uh, fast learning curve. And in 2010, we, we became an electricity supplier, which was even braver because that's uh, very complicated. 
and uh, far more expensive. Uh, but again, we saw a niche in the marketplace. We saw a chance to assist business owners who the big six energy suppliers were not particularly helping uh, because these were new startups or these were perhaps business movers who didn't have particularly a very good credit rating. And we developed a product which was specifically for them. And uh, I'm proud to say that that's, uh, that's gone very well. We've created a, a successful portfolio and we, ha we, we have tens of thousands of customers now and uh, we've traded for a long time and we have a, um, a, well, a successful, profitable portfolio, uh, which is going from strength to strength. So uh, that's, the, that's the energy journey. Um, just to give you some um, highlights on the other uh, businesses I became in 2004. Uh, 2004, I was invited by my bank manager at the time to become involved with Fleetwood Football Club, which, is, uh, which at the time was a local, pretty much pub football club. Uh, we were five leagues below the Football League. Uh, the ground was really in a state of disrepair. And uh, the team was okay. It was probably mid-table. And uh, I got involved. I remember coming down and I thought, this place is really falling to bits and it was really struggling. And I think the, well, the previous chairman had left. If I hadn't got involved, there's every chance the club would not have existed. I think the pivotal moment for me was they tried to close the deal in the social club after the game. Um, and I went in, I thought, it smells really badly in there. Uh, so uh, I opened the window and the window fell out of my hand. So I thought, oh, I owe these guys now. Uh, I'm going to have to do something because I broke the window. So uh, I don't know. It may have been staged. It, it may have been a very clever ploy. Uh, but uh, tens of millions of pounds later, I'm still involved. And uh, uh, we've, uh, we've had remarkable success. I'm told the fastest progression in the history of English football. We've gone from five leagues below the Football League to uh, knocking on the door of the championship last year. Uh, we we lost out, I would say narrowly, but uh, it was uh, pretty significantly, really, uh, in the playoffs, uh, semi-finals. Uh, but, uh, you know, still great to, to get to that level. Uh, we intend to go one step further this year. And it's something that gives me a great deal of pleasure in my life. Um, I think football is a vehicle that you can use to engage with uh, similar like-minded people. There tends to be a lot of entrepreneurs, business people uh, in sports. And it certainly opens doors. So uh, that's a big part of my life. And it's been a magical journey going through um, those leagues and uh, visiting those different grounds. Uh, and those, you know, we've kind of started with villages and uh, progressed to towns and now we go to cities. Uh, so uh, it's, uh, it's been great fun. It really has. And it's a, a huge part of my life. And in 2015, I started a, a uh, a company called Cardsaver, which is a chip and pin solutions business. And we deal with international banks. And what we do is we use the international bank's gateway into MasterCard and Visa. And we provide a, a solution to their uh, chip and pin requirements. We'll provide them with hardware, with software. And I think in this day and age, certainly with what we're going through now more than ever, uh, we're, we're edging towards a cashless society. Uh, there's so many positives with making your business cashless. All of my businesses are cashless. I practice what I preach in that respect. And it's quicker, more efficient service. You don't spend uh, a long time uh, putting floats together or cashing up at the end of the night. You don't have to get security core out. You, you shouldn't have to worry quite as much about getting broken into and people stealing your, uh, your takings. And uh, I think that's the direction we're heading in. And uh, I don't like to get involved in sectors that I think are, are phases. I want to only get involved in sectors that I think have got real longevity and continuity. And I do think debit cards and credit cards has. Um, I also have a utilities brokerage and aggregator business called Commercial Power. And recently, uh, which might be quite interesting for you guys, um, I set up an outsourcing organization, which is a call center in Cape Town in South Africa. And that is an organization which is there to assist um, global uh, entities, really, with uh, whether it be incoming call, 
um, requirements or outgoing sales requirements. And uh, there's a real call center culture uh, out in South Africa and the skill set that I require is there on tap. And uh, it's, it's, been, uh, it's been a very interesting adventure uh, also uh, going out there and uh, uh, it's very much on my to-do list to continue to build that business up. I mean, um, Fleetwood Town's journey uh, has, been, has been incredible. And uh, I know we've got a, a number of people tuning in, um, uh, particularly interested in, in Fleetwood and its uh, progression. And, you know, one of the biggest difficulties during the first lockdown um, was the fact that all sports was halted. Um, you know, as an avid football fan myself, who regularly attends the game, it was, it was a frustrating period, as I'm sure it was for a number of people. Um, and I can only imagine how even more difficult it has been for the actual clubs. Um, how did Fleetwood adjust during the first lockdown? And what would you say the, the current state of the club is like right now? Well, I mean, I think there's various answers to the, to the first question, Sunil. Uh, I mean, first and foremost, one of the biggest frustrations we had is um, from a sporting point of view, we felt like we were just absolutely in the zone. We'd lost one in 18 games, none in 12, and... Uh, sometimes uh, if you're involved in football or as a football supporter you feel like where whoever you play you're going to beat and we were just on that kind of we had the momentum we had the, uh, the the winning formula I'm convinced that had the season continued we would have been successful and achieved automatic promotion so that was a real disappointment uh, we went into lockdown and uh, we were then faced with uh, the, the dilemma how how really do we keep the players fit whilst they're not in the environment and the culture that they're familiar with at the training ground and we we had to try and do that over over the internet as best we can and so your uh your sports scientists and your physios are are watching the players run or do exercises and this is all very very different to to what we're used to and it's my belief that, I mean, physical fitness is, is one thing, which is uh, hugely important. But I also think an ingredient for success, be it in sport or be it in, um, in business, is the mindset. And if you can get your players in and if they can be galvanised by their manager and if he can light the room up and make the hairs in the back of their neck stand up, then you really have a chance that they will go to war for you and they'll get, they'll get over the line, they'll win you three points. But we weren't able to do that. So we had to bring them all back uh, in really strange circumstances whereby they weren't allowed to train together. There were small groups of four. And it was all rather surreal. And uh, with hindsight, could we have managed it better? We probably could. We felt like we didn't turn up when it mattered in the playoffs. So the sporting side was disappointing. Financially, it was horrendous because um, we lost virtually every revenue stream that uh, would normally be available to us and a football club a football club like Fleetwood it's not just about the people who come through the turnstile and historically that's what it used to be that was pretty much the only revenue stream it was how many people are going to go through uh, the turnstile and maybe you'll get your secondary you'll get your secondary spend but the lack of games meant that we had no TV money coming in. And the TV money is quite significant. We lost out on uh, really um, many other revenue streams we have. Uh, the model here at Fleetwood is we have a state-of-the-art training ground. We have an extraordinary training ground, um, Premier League quality. And the training ground brings in various other streams of income. Um, there's a lot. We've got 13 pitches here. Those pitches are rented out on a regular basis. We have a restaurant. We have offices whereby we'll get rental income under normal circumstances. We also have an international academy whereby we have uh, students coming from um, all around the world who uh, will experience um, being trained to be a professional athlete uh, by our FA qualified coaches. Uh, we partner up with a, uh, a fantastic local school who will also deliver an educational curriculum. Uh, so really, even if they're not going to go on and be professional football players, uh, what we can 
put our name to and we can hand got hat on is that by the time they go home, they've had a fantastic experience. They'll go home as better people um, and a, a real uh, great um, opportunity in life. Uh, that came to an end as well. So every single revenue stream that we had ended um, as soon as um, as soon as the lockdown came in. So it was kind of batten down the hatches. When's this going to end? We really don't know. So going back to what I was saying before about planning, uh, if you don't know when things are going to end, it becomes very difficult to devise a way forwards because um, it's, it's, it's just so necessary to, uh, to know that information, to have a solid plan. So very, very difficult. Um, I think the final part of your question is where, where are we at now? Honestly, it's really, really tough. It really is because um, I think it's well documented in the press. Um, I've been quite vocal about it personally as a chairman, as an owner uh, in the media, um, be it on the radio or on television, that there is an enormous hole in the, the requirements to run English Football League clubs in this country. A hole the size of £250 million. And it feels to me like the problem has been somewhat passed around. Uh, I think it's been disappointing the way it's been dealt with. Uh, we have now a rescue package, which is £50 million, which again is hugely gratefully received. However, there's a £30 million loan uh, and a £20 million grant. It's my belief that that should be a grant, uh, the entirety of it. I don't accept the argument personally that uh, why would a big uh, food chain help out a little sandwich shop? The businesses are absolutely connected. We develop the the players, the stars of the future, and we need to have that working relationship. Um, we developed Jamie Vardy, who went on to be sold to Leicester, who I sold to Leicester, who goes on to win Leicester the Premier League. Uh, we've got some incredible uh, young players from the Premier League now, and we did have last season, the previous season to that. And this is a reciprocal arrangement whereby we all need each other. And the money which is actually in... Um, the money which is actually within the game of football, we're talking billions and billions of pounds. We're looking at a nine billion pound global TV fund and I think 50 million pound for the infrastructure. And we have to remember as well, the Premier League clubs, in my opinion, should remember where the vast majority of them came from over the last few years. They were EFL clubs and the likelihood is there'll be EFL clubs in the future again. So they've got to be careful what they wish for because this isn't just a case of, oh, Great shame some of the clubs are going to fall by the wayside here. The very infrastructure of the competition will fall to bits if we lose what are long-standing um, institutions that have rep represented the towns and the cities up and down the country for so many years, over 100 years in many, many cases. And the quality of life and the pride and the feel-good factor should not be underestimated. Uh, there is literally some people that the only time they'll go out the house is to see their football family and the employment and whatnot. I mean, if, if we can support the arts to the, uh, the amount of money that they've been supported, I don't think it's unreasonable uh, that uh, football clubs should be supported also. Because I think they play a really, really important part in the, um, in the quality of life of so many people up and down the country. Uh, that's my belief. And my biggest frustration really is that I've, it's felt like the problem has been passed around like somewhat of a hot potato. And what I think should have happened is the key stakeholders should have been put in a room, locked in the room if need be, right? And saying, guys, sort this out. Find a way to keep these football clubs afloat because they're important. What we've got in this country that is, uh, is the envy of the rest of the world. And we should keep it going, whether it's the Premier League, whether it's a holiday on pay-as-you-earn, uh, whether it is uh, the PFA have not been particularly helpful at all either. They, I think all we've heard from them is uh, how a salary cap is, uh, is wrong and uh, how they should challenge that through the courts. Uh, but we have to make football sustainable again. Football desperately needs a, redistrib a redistribution of money because uh, we have to... Uh, we have to make 
football sustainable. And uh, that can be easily achieved with a tweaking of the distribution and making sure that we all live within our means. You talked a bit about the, the Premier League there um, and almost um, not quite understanding uh, some of the issues the EFL are facing or just plain right uh, in some regards being a bit selfish. Do, do you think that, do you think one of the reasons is maybe a lack of knowledge or because, you know, I, I think one of the big differences when you look at what makes our country so incredible uh, football-wise is the fact that you've got teams like Nottingham Forest and the Championship who hold, you know, two Champions Leagues and are, are a huge club. Whereas you go to Italy, you go to Spain, their sort of second divisions, third divisions, fourth divisions aren't really regarded. You, know, you don't see the level of passion that you see for a League One team that you would, um, let's say, in a championship equivalent in Barca, uh, in um, Spain. Um, do you think that is potentially a reason why that there's this almost disregard from maybe some of the owners in the Premiership? I think um, I think some of the owners said before, really, they've got to be careful what they wish for because if the EFL is to really suffer, it's highly likely they may find themselves in the EFL in the future. And um, the consequences then would be quite severe for them. I don't think it's necessary that there's vast parachute payments for clubs going down. Um, I think if there was a smoothing of, um, uh, of the way the payments are distributed, that would be far more sensible. And the salary cap I was hugely in favour of because without the salary cap, there is always the danger... I've done it myself. Nobody, when you win at football, it's a fantastic feeling. Uh, it really, really is. And uh, you, you naturally want more of it. If the salary cap means you have a budget that you must stick to, and if that makes football sustainable, then there's nothing wrong with that at all. I think it's fantastic if we can be in a, uh, in a footballing world whereby the best manager, the best environment, the best sporting culture goes on to win rather than the person who is prepared to gamble the most amount of money because if you gamble the most amount of money and then if you get bored with your football club and decide that you don't want it anymore, what you find is, um, as we saw with Berry, as we've seen with Wigan recently, mm. uh, and there's, there's many, many other clubs that are very, very close to the edge right now, um, then we find ourselves in a situation whereby uh, the good people of that town or that city that generations and generations and generations have gone along and uh, it feels like just such a, a hub of the local community can all become a thing of the past and uh, with just some careful management and not being afraid of change because there's nothing up with running a business to a budget uh, we can avoid uh, financial disaster for the future so i think now it's about embracing change uh, i mean project big picture for example's sake was published and there was outcry as to how appalling it is uh, that uh, the big clubs have, uh, that they actually want to have a say in, uh, well, they want to have the sole say really uh, in the future direction of the Premier League. I don't really share the view that uh, it was far from perfect. I fully accept that, but I don't think we should be dismissive of change because my opinion is it's controversial, but the reality is the reason why there's £9 billion pounds, uh, of worldwide TV rights is because people want to watch Manchester United against Liverpool. They want to watch Chelsea against Tottenham. Uh, they want to watch the really, really big clubs. Much respect to uh, Brighton against Burnley, but we're not going to get a £9 billion pounds TV deal if they are the live games. It's about the bigger clubs and Equally, if we're not careful and if we do not listen to their requirements and their needs, then there is a danger of an impending uh, European breakaway Super League. And we should be prepared to talk. Uh, the very clubs who were outraged by uh, this, uh, this motion for change are the same clubs that were proposing no relegation last season. And uh, this is hypocrisy at its finest. And to me, um, I get self-interest. Football is riddled with self-interest. It really, really is. But we need to really pull the key players together, the key stakeholders, get around the table and decide on a long-term strategy uh, for the future, which gives us the solidity and the uh, stability which is required.
we've had uh, a number of more football questions, which hopefully we can come back to towards sure. the end. Um, I, I want to move a, a bit more towards um, some of the sort of political questions we've had also. Um, you, you made it clear last election uh, that you would be voting uh, Conservative. Um, now, a lot of people tend to shy away from their political views, especially those involved in business and even more so if they're voting Conservative. So um, I want to start with, you know, why did you vote Conservative and how did that journey start, if you like? Well, what I'd say first and foremost is I believe in the principles of the Conservative Party. I believe in business. I believe in job creation. Uh, I believe in encouraging entrepreneurial spirits. Um, I think that that is how we create the best quality of life for the residents of this country. I'm convinced that that is what we should be focused on. And um, for that very reason, I've always supported the Conservative Party. However, the implications of a Labour government, in particular at the last election, were severe for the town whereby I'm the main employer. I, I employ close to a thousand people in a town which has a population of 27,000 people. And for that reason, I did not want the good people of Fleetwood to sleepwalk into a situation whereby they would see their football club close. The local energy um, company, which employs more people than anybody else in the town of Fleetwood, close. Because the Labour manifesto was to nationalise the energy sector, which would mean businesses like mine would go. The knock-on effect would be I would struggle to fund the football club to the manner which I've done historically. The football club would then um, certainly would not be able to compete at the level which it currently does. That would also lead to probably the loss of 200 members of staff. Now, I'm not afraid to, um, to put my head above the parapet and to, to make, again, uh, the residents of Fleetwood aware of the implications as to what this means. And I could not have looked at myself in the mirror if I hadn't have uh, explained what would happen if a Labour government had got in in the last election and the knock-on effect it would have to the people of this town. Because quite rightly, I think they would have been saying, well, Andy, you could have told us. We didn't really understand what this would mean and what this would mean for the town. Um, I think by doing it, um, naturally, uh, you uh, you end up uh, being trolled to death on the, on the internet. Uh, doesn't particularly bother me that, uh, but there are people who it does. Um, I think that kind of behaviour is very, very poor. Um, I'm a big boy, I can take it personally, but the levels that some of these people go to is quite deplorable. And they will start to target your businesses as well. And really, all I did there is uh, I stated my beliefs and I don't think there's anything wrong with that whatsoever. Uh, but sadly, uh, there are um, quite extreme uh, trolls out there who will make it the business to make your life uh, very difficult. Uh, I think I actually even made the cartoon in The Guardian, uh, which was quite an honour as well. Uh, but <laughs> fame at last. Uh, so uh, I just felt it was uh, something which uh, I had to do uh, for the best interest of the town. Uh, it was disappointing because I think the, the local MP, who uh, regardless of um, which party she represents, I would have expected her to still have a working relationship with me as the, uh, as the largest employer in the town. Uh, seems to have took it personal, uh, but it wasn't personal against her. It was uh, Mr. Corbyn's uh, policies and uh, my concern as to what it would mean for the people of the town uh, where I live and where I employ a lot of people. You touched on it there um, about the sort of trolling and you know I did, I did talk recently about how people nowadays are victim to horrendous trolling whenever they come out support for a political party especially uh, when they are uh, senior figures like yourself. Um, what was the kind of reaction you had when you made your sport public um, and what advice would you give maybe to other people who may be afraid to voice their opinion especially as we see you on social media um, you know in the last election there was a great sense of fear you know you look at the top trending tags on your, your twitters and, and um, instagrams were all labor and corbyn in 
uh, Boris and Conservatives out, yet the results were, of course, Labour having their worst election results since 1935. So what, what kind of, you know, um, advice would you would you say? Well, first of all, I would say that I think what you should do is you should stand up for your beliefs and not be bullied by these people, uh, because that's what they are. They, they're, they're bullies. They attempt to intimidate people uh, and prevent people from uh, from stating uh, what is their belief. And, um, you know, I stand by uh, my belief is not self-interest. It's in the best interest of my community and the residents of this town and, uh, the, the, and, and the entire population of the United Kingdom. Um, I truly hand on heart believe that uh, uh, the conservative policies are far, far better. Um, I think it's almost quite organised, um, whereby that if somebody comes out and supports uh, the Conservative Party, the impression I got, um, I got a few retweets to a couple of people who they are, or if they really even exist, I don't really know. Uh, but they had uh, uh, maybe a million million followers and next thing you're bombarded. Uh, so uh, an awful lot of that going on. Uh, they try to target your business, which I think is really disappointing. Some of it is really below the belt. And it's my belief also that I think when people go too far, it should be deemed as a criminal offence. And I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, I mean, I had to, uh, on one occasion several years ago, uh, take out a civil uh, prosecution against an individual for, I really to this day still do not know why, uh, but uh, this is a paradise for cowards uh, and, uh, uh, and liars and people with their own agenda. And uh, I think there should be new laws. And I think uh, you should not be able to overstep the mark as some people do. And there should be a process whereby people are accountable for their actions. And uh, if, they, uh, if they do uh, go too far, then uh, there should be consequences, is my belief. I think you make a good point as well, by the way, Sunil, about if you had have read social media prior to the last election, you would have expected a Labour landslide rather than a Conservative landslide. So uh, fake news at its finest. I, don't, I think there's not many people who disagree with you, especially when it comes to um, the, the uh, Twitter people and uh, the people on the platform, you know, doing horrible things and not, you know, being subject to sort of criminal charges. I think some of the stuff is horrendous and it's very commendable. Someone like you, you know, is not necessarily directly involved in politics and, you know, is involved in business, still has the, uh, the ability to come out and say, this is what you believe in and um, almost just take it on chin. So, um, you know, one thing that obviously you're very influential in Fleetwood and um, in, in contributing to the, the job market, a, a big question we often hear in politics is what is the future of uh, Northern England? You know, many people argue it's ignored. You know, we saw projects like the Northern Powerhouse by George Osborne receive very mixed messages um, and receptions. Now, you, you've obviously built a very successful business, um, you know, whilst being up north and you've almost a, a shining example there. How do you feel about Northern businesses and how can the government help bridge the gap between them and London? Well, I mean, the Northern powerhouse is something, uh, I'm really glad you brought that up, Sunil. Um, I was actually, I was, I was privileged enough to, uh, to go to Downing Street and to be involved in, uh, I met the Chancellor to talk about the, the Northern powerhouse, what I felt uh, as, a, as a Northern businessman. And uh, my concern was always that um, I felt it was important that this was not going to be just a Manchester and Leeds powerhouse, uh, and that uh, other northern towns were very important also, and that we should take into account uh, the, uh, the ability to uh, enhance the economy. Uh, things, town centres are changing all the time. Uh, we live in an age whereby uh, we, we kind of see less independent shops, perhaps more Tesco Expresses and more internet shopping uh, than, uh, than they used to be. Um, my belief is that there should have been a, a, a long ago a relaxation on business rates. I think business rates were counterproductive to people starting up businesses and uh, re, uh, restarting town centres and to try and uh, reignite uh, town centres. I think that they are uh, very, very important that there are independent uh, shops in it rather than having empty shops even give tax breaks if somebody can come up with a, a credible business plan uh, or even be given guidance as to this is how you run your business. This is how you manage your finances from the beginning, 
stating the obvious, of course, the ins have to be more than the outs. You have to have a financial model. That has to be in tablets of stone. You have to stick to it. And if you do that, and if you work hard, and if you promote your business on social media, uh, this is how you do that. Uh, I think there are um, things we can do better as a country to encourage new startups. Uh, that's what's needed, particularly in the north of England. Um, another bugbearer of mine is transport and the town of Fleetwood. Uh, we don't even have a train station. And we are, um, I think, the only football club in the English Football League without a train station. Uh, the road infrastructure is quite simply awful. So why would anybody look to open a business in Fleetwood with the, uh, with the transport links being as poor as what they are? Um, that is um, really, really frustrating. I'm not convinced that HS2 um, is the silver bullet, really, because my personal view is it's very, very expensive. We're going through unprecedented times that are enormously expensive. And does it really matter if it takes one hour, 10 or two hours to get from Manchester to London? To me, we've managed to secure a lot of traditional Labour votes in the north of England. And what we should be doing is we should be engaging with those communities and we should be reigniting those economies. We should be listening to the, to the residents and, uh, and doing all we can uh, to retain their votes. And if we can do that, then I think that that's far more important than HS2. That's my personal view. Um, and I don't think it's that difficult to do. Um, I've, uh, I've encountered, um, when I've started my business in South Africa, the government's really, really helpful to starting businesses out there. I don't think we are as helpful as what we could be in this country. I think there's lessons to be learned uh, to assist entrepreneurs and do all we can to ensure they don't fail. And if we can do that in the north, the south, the east or the west, then I think the country and its economy can be so much better. Yeah, you've touched on uh, South Africa um, and he expanded uh, your team and business in, into that country. And of course, uh, for us, we're a bit biased with the Commonwealth and South Africa being a, a Commonwealth country. Um, how, how was that experience for you? It's been fascinating. It's been it's been a, a wonderful adventure, um, and it's been uh, it's been successful. Uh, it really has. I mean, one of the challenges I have is I've got a very small population uh, where I'm based. I'm a peninsula, um, the north south, sorry, the northeast west. We're surrounded by the sea, uh, so I don't really have the kind of skill set that I require on tap if I am to to grow. And by outsourcing some work to South Africa, that has enabled me to employ more people in the northwest of England because the skill set, the call centre culture that I require is readily available on tap. Um, I've had enormous help from the British consulate out there and probably the biggest lesson I've learned is I expected when I went out there to not receive any assistance from really from the South African government or from the British consulate. And I, I, I got stuck in, I did things on my own and I made mistakes. I made assumptions that things would be the same as they are in the UK. Now, around a year ago, when I did engage with the British consulate, they were great because they signposted me towards various different organizations, the South African DTI, uh, a company called Westgrow, which is for growth in the Western Cape of Africa. And these guys, nothing is too much trouble. If you're an international investor, there is a government directive to encourage international investment, whereby you're creating jobs. And they will sit down with, with the likes of me or any uh, international investor, and they will talk to you about how you can uh, be successful by starting a business in their particular country. Uh, so I wish I'd done that earlier, uh, but I also think it's something that if people have got a serious idea, and if people are looking to uh, to start a business in this country and with the appalling redundancies that uh, we've encountered since the outbreak of COVID, when people are looking to, to start a business, I really think that help should be on hand to do all we can to make sure that those businesses are a success. 
in in terms of uh, so South Africa, it's been um, it seems like a success for you. Um, is, is that something you'd be looking to explore further in terms of maybe other countries, Commonwealth countries um, coming up in, in, in the future? Obviously, it's very hard now, right now in terms of COVID, but you know, once we start to move past this this virus and this stage, is that something that you'd you know potentially uh, envisage doing more work with? I think definitely yes. Uh, my thoughts are that. Um, the world seems smaller when you travel regularly. Uh, you know, when you're a kid, it's a long way to London, but uh, South Africa, a 12 hour flight, I'm quite used to it now. And it's, uh, it's quite standard practice. And I, um, I love visiting different countries. I think there's an abundance of opportunities, particularly with the Commonwealth. And uh, as I say, it's refreshing to know that help is on hand. And uh, the one bit of constructive criticism I could, uh, I could give really is that perhaps um, we should be um, more, we should be, we should advertise more that help is available out in Commonwealth countries and we should do all we can to promote uh, reciprocal business between uh, the Commonwealth moving forwards. And uh, I didn't know it was available, uh, but, uh, and there's probably, there's probably people in a, in a similar situation. So we, it's my belief that we should promote uh, that assistance is actually out there. Well, I'm going to move to a couple of questions we've had from the audience. Um, uh, one from Harry and Maidenhead. He's uh, moved back onto the football topic. Um, his question is, how can big clubs uh, help grassroots football teams like yourselves, which is uh, which he believes is the lifeblood of local economy? I think there's lots of ways and a, a really good question. What I would say is uh, there's some easy wins here. And I spoke before about the development of players. Now, the Premier League clubs need, uh, they need to be able to send their players out to earn their stripes, to develop them and to, uh, to create the stars of the future. And whether it be uh, Tammy Abraham or whether it be uh, Jamie Vardy or whoever it will be, uh, they've all been out in the Football League. I think that what should happen is the Premier League, given that these clubs are not exactly short of money, let's be honest, they should they should loan those players out for free and they should develop relationships with EFL clubs. They shouldn't be charging them. They should be working with them. And there should be um, a more collective uh, view across football whereby, OK, we may be opponents on occasions for 90 minutes, but we all work in the same sector. We create the same challenges. We should share, we should share what is best practice. We should, uh, we should share what works for one and what may be a problem for somebody else to avoid uh, any unnecessary uh, complications and to enhance uh, best practice. I just think that we can, uh, we should forget about all being rivals and we should, um, we should look at the best interests of football. I've got huge respect for grassroots and for amateur football, semi-pro football, because that's the level that Fleetwood comes from. And there's some fantastic people out there that, uh, you know, there's guys who, who are the, the owners who, what you will find is, they'll be sweeping the, the dressing rooms at the end of the game. They'll be making the referee a cup of tea at half time and uh, opening up and putting funds in that they can probably ill afford. And those kind of community clubs again are hugely important and just a slither of money from the Premier League which instead of a player maybe getting £300,000 a week he might get £280,000 a week I don't think will harm him particularly but if we could redistribute some of those funds to grassroots to amateur to semi-pro then it would make all the difference it really would. It's a great point. You look at uh, even Max Kilman uh, at Wolves. He uh, played for Mainland, which is where I live. Um, he played for Mainland United and Wolves have signed him now and he's playing. Uh, he's played pretty much every game this year for the Premier League. So it's, uh, it's a really uh, good question. And, um, you know, there's a great example of Chelsea and they have the Dutch team, I think Vitesse, where they loan you know, pretty much their whole team is Chelsea's uh, loaning. And there's no reason why that couldn't potentially be a, an English club. Um, we've had a, another really interesting question uh, from Lucas Foy. Um, he's uh, written in, do you believe that the reduced energy consumption in the business sector due to COVID-19 will become a political argument to renationalize? And if, if so, in the next election, 
uh, it will become a powerful political point due to loss of jobs in the private sector due to COVID-19. Well, my belief is um, I don't think nationalisation works. I think we need to be able to give the public competition um, for, I think it, it drives the bar up of standards. I think that constantly um, the offers are going to be better um, if we have freedom of choice, if we have deregulation. Uh, so um, I would be very surprised if uh, nationalisation uh, I think Mr. Corbyn, that was one of his key points to uh, to nationalise as many things as possible. And uh, he took a paste in. Uh, so uh, I think inevitably my view is what will happen is the Labour Party will move uh, more to the right, which isn't difficult given where they were. Um, and uh, I I think that uh, COVID is a, is a separate challenge entirely. And if if we'd been nationalised, if, 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 if the... Uh, sector have been private this is still going to be an enormous challenge and there's still be surplus from the generators and uh, it's uh, I think it's a mute point really but uh, an interesting one nonetheless so uh, thank you for that Lucas. Um, and another one from Mark um, he's wondering if you have any insights into how footballers approach politics as fortunately our sport is not but is not politicized in this country. Mm, well, um, I'm not aware of any footballers who've come out, I'm just trying to think now, who've ever actually posted their allegiance to the Conservative Party. Uh, is there, can, can we think of anybody? I'm not sure. Um, there's one or two that have posted their allegiance to the Labour Party, I think, uh, mainly from uh, a certain city not a million miles away from me. Uh, but uh, it's uh, footballers tend to stay out of politics is... Uh, is my view. I think they they don't want to be seen as divisive. Uh, my um, my intention, and I there's certainly no apologies for me whatsoever. I want what's best for my community. And hand on heart, as I said before, I know a Conservative government is far better for the town of Fleetwood, and I believe for the uh, for the entire country. Uh, therefore, I make no apologies for uh, promoting the Conservative Party. But footballers tend to not be quite as uh, uh, Opinionated as football club owners, shall we say? I think the only one I can think of is Sol Campbell. I know Sol Campbell came out as a conservative, but that was also um, in relation to last election. Um, so I, other than that, I, I, yeah, I, I can't think of any, um, especially on on the blue side. I think I think a few have probably come on the uh, uh, on, on Labour side, but I can't think of any on the conservative side. Um, no. But finally, one of our last questions, um, uh, it's on the economy. Um, one of our regular talking points on, on all these webinars, how, you know, how much COVID-19 is going to affect the economy. Um, and we've had different people say different things about being very pro-lockdown, some people being uh, on, on the flip side. You know, what's your general stance on, you know, how, how the government's doing COVID-19 and, um, and, you know, whether what you potentially foresee for the long term of this country and going forward in terms of business, should we continue with lockdowns? Personally, I feel that the second lockdown is not necessary and I think it will have far reaching consequences for the business and for economy. But again, my view is that shielding the vulnerable feels like a far better thing to do. Um, I think there are two different stages to the financial pain that we're going to feel. One is the here and now, whereby can businesses ride out this storm? The second is I'm concerned as to the consequences of how we are going to pay for all of the furlough and the sea bills and the, uh, the, other, uh, the other measures that the Treasury have made available to keep uh, the wheels turning within the economy. So hugely concerning. I was very, very disappointed, disappointed when I found out we're going into a lockdown situation again. Uh, that said, I'm not party to the medical uh, situation and the advice that is being, being given by the professors. The last thing we want to see is mortality um, because, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's as, as bad as it possibly gets. But uh, I just want to see the economy starting up again. It feels to me like we've worked incredibly hard for decades to deliver a very good standard of living. I'm 50 years old now and 20, 30, 40 years ago, um, for any of the younger viewers, uh, the quality of life was nothing like what we experience today. It really, really wasn't. So we've worked very, very hard 
I'd like to see things get better still. And uh, my concern is for the longer the lockdown goes, the, the deeper the hole is we have to dig ourselves out of. Uh, but uh, we must be guided by the powers that be there. And uh, hopefully, uh, we, all, we all hope and pray we get back to some form of normality. Well, that concludes uh, our webinar today. I, I want to say a huge thank you for everyone who, who's tuned in, um, but in particular to Andy, uh, to take, who's taken time out of his busy schedule um, today and shared some really insightful information. Um, it's refreshing to actually hear um, a successful businessman on our platform and, um, and who's actually put in practice to a lot of the sort of conservative policies and um, and someone who is a who can actually you know talk about some of the stuff that we often hear from politicians about how they're trying to help businesses and is an example of someone who actually has been successful um, in his in his work. So thank you for your time, Andy. Um, and yeah, it, it's been great uh, talking to you today. A pleasure, a pleasure. Thank you for everyone who's tuned in. I'm uh, I'm truly honoured and uh, uh, good luck to everyone. Uh, let's hope uh, uh, the good times re return soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.